You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. It's good to be together here today on this Sunday. Uh, We're landing the plane on 1 Corinthians, been in this book for a while, uh, and we have the opportunity to uh, see how Paul closes out this important letter, like we said every week, to an actual local church in an actual city, giving them instruction, pointing them to Christ, uh, and allowing us to to understand really what we just sang about, that everything that we're doing is worth it, because Jesus really actually is the one that he claimed to be. So I'm going to pray for us, uh, and then uh, we'll jump into the text. Before I do that, any teachers here this morning? Any teachers? Will you stand up if you're a school teacher? Anyone who's here? Here we go. Hope uh, we are excited for y'all and are, uh, are thankful for, I know your summer's over, but we're thankful uh, for the, the mission field that God takes you to every day as a teacher. So we're grateful for you and for all the students who are here. Uh, we're excited for y'all to start school, and I just want to encourage you to let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into 1 Corinthians, uh, the end of 15 and chapter 16. Father, we're thankful for your word. What a gift it is. We have the words of our creator in our Bibles. I ask that we'll be good stewards of that reality, of that grace that we'll hear them, receive them, and that we'll allow those things to be on our heart and on our mind and our souls of you telling us who you are and what that means for all of us. Pray for our teachers and students and parents uh, as everyone goes back this week. Lord, we just ask uh, for a great school year and that you use the people of this church uh, to make a difference for Jesus in the places where you have them. We also pray for all the churches in our city as they gather today. As we know, we're not the only ones doing this. May the gospel of Jesus Christ be proclaimed from every pulpit. I ask that you keep the enemy out of this place, out of our church, out of our lives, and out of our city, and we're thankful for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're new here, we've been going through this book for a while, just verse by verse. We're just going to pick up where we left off at the end of 15. So Paul writes this, what I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What does flesh and blood mean? Our natural selves like us merely as human beings apart from Jesus, are still in our sinful state. We be people who are still corrupt, still are unrighteous. Like our natural selves, who we are apart from Christ, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He says, that the, he says nor can corruption, which would be all sinful people, inherit incorruption. To stand right before God, we cannot stand before him in our own righteousness because God cannot allow, allow impurity, unholiness, corruption in his presence. But thankfully, our holy God is also a God of grace and a God of mercy, and Jesus was everything that we could not be. He lived the perfect life that we did not live. He died a death that we deserved, and when we trust in Christ, he gives us his righteousness, So now we can stand before Jesus, not as flesh and blood, but as people who have the spirit, and we are reconciled to God. He says, listen, I'm telling you a mystery, and there is mystery to all of this. I want to make sure we're clear where God is clear, and when there are some things that we're not exactly sure the times and the dates and how that plays out, a part of believing the authority of the scripture is acknowledging that when the Bible also acknowledges it. He says, we will not fall asleep. We will all be changed in a moment and a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. He's referring to the return of Christ. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible. We once were corruptible, now our bodies are going to be incorruptible, and we will be changed once and for all. For this corruptible body must be clothed with 
incorruptibility. We're told in the scriptures to clothe ourselves with Jesus Christ. That's what happens in our salvation. And this mortal body, which is different, we'll explain that in a minute, must be closed with immorality. He's saying there'll be no process or development that our change will be instantaneous whether we are dead or alive, asleep, as the Bible would say, or alive. And he's referring to our bodies, to our entire selves. Now, spiritually, we are changed instantaneously and made new when we put our faith in Christ. And there is a process of growth throughout our lives here on earth called sanctification, of becoming more like Jesus, but the ultimate renewal of our corrupt bodies will take place when Christ returns. So Paul here informs the believer on two things that will be changed about our bodies. Their perishable condition, number one, and their mortal condition, number two. Perishable and mortal. The word corruptible is there in verse 53. The ESV says perishable, and it means that our bodies wear out. They stop working. They eventually decay. You can take as many supplements and go to as many juice bars and do as much yoga as you want, but eventually, I think those are good things, eventually your body will actually decay. Even Tom Brady one day will break down. When he's 67 years old and has to retire, I'll take like three weeks off in mourning, uh, but I think banks should be closed, schools, everything, when that day happens. But every single person in this room, our bodies are perishable. They're perishing. They're corrupted. And mortal means that our bodies die. That one day all of us in this room will die. The mortality rate in Tallahassee is 100%. There's a difference between, again, the perishable body and the mortal body. Perishable, like mortal, you can die young. You can die in great shape. So when Jesus comes back to establish the kingdom of God on earth, our bodies will be changed so there is no decay. There is no wearing down. There's no running down our bodies. And ultimately, there is no death. 1 Corinthians has 15 has very good news for believers. He's given them all these instructions about their lives, and it's a very cosmopolitan, secular town, the city of Corinth, and a lot of the believers had mingled into the city, not as missionaries, but as blending in lifestyle-wise and belief-wise, and he's been giving them instruction, and here at the end he wants to remind them the big picture of what awaits for them and why that matters so much in the present. John Piper, pastor and author, says this, we will have new bodies, different from these, they live forever and are capable of vastly greater joys, and yet like these, so that we will know each other as the disciples recognize Jesus in his resurrection body. I get asked that question from time to time. Often after a death of a family member, someone might say, do you think we'll actually know people, know each other in heaven? We recognize each other, like, well, we... Will I know who my you know, son who passed away or my grandmother or will I, will I know who these people are? And I think the, the evidence in the scriptures is yes. Because the glimpse, and that's just not sentimental. We can't approach the scripture sentimentally, but to approach the scripture as it is because sentimentality doesn't give lasting joy and lasting hope. It's temporary. But the scriptures give us an idea of what it's going to be like when we see the resurrected Jesus in his glorified state. That's a kind of a hint and a glimpse of what that will be like. It was in all its glory, but also they recognized him when God opened their eyes to be able to do so. They knew who Jesus was in his resurrected, glorified state, and I believe that's a hint for us that the same will be true. Why would we be less intelligent on heaven than we, we are on earth? It just wouldn't make very much sense. 
So he goes on in verse 54. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. And he has this strong conclusion for them based on all he just talked about, about our bodies and what happens. And it's, amazing cry, it's an amazing cry from Scripture, an Old Testament prophecy, and it's these words, death has been swallowed up in victory. Like, that's the good news. That what you're doing now in Corinth, how you're being led astray, it makes no sense because everything that Jesus has told you is going to come true is going to come true. So why live for the world when you can live for the one who has had death swallowed up in victory? And then he says this, it's also Old Testament prophecy he's quoting, where death is your victory? He's kind of mocking death in the moment, talking a little bit of trash to death. Where death is your sting? Last week in verse 26, we were told the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And it looks like here that death gets an apparent win. They get the dub, as people like to say. Looks like they are the ones who get to have the last laugh. That yeah, he's the Messiah, I guess he did some nice things, taught us some nice lessons, but somehow that can be explained away because guess what? We won death. Because Jesus on the cross died. Just the way that death got what seems to be a victory over Jesus, I assume that means it has victory ultimately over us because we all die, there's a funeral, you're buried, and then after some flowers and some refreshments, everybody kind of goes off and lives their life. Yet the sting's still there. The hurt and pain is still there of someone you've lost. The death just rings in us, the brokenness of our world. And it's one of those things that we feel helpless towards because all of us are going to die. But here we see the scriptures telling us that death might seem like it's winning, but it's the least self-aware personification in the history of the universe. Because Jesus rose from the grave So it seemed like a major defeat, a huge loss, a win for the enemy was a defeat that proved the greatest victory of all, that his death was swallowed up in victory. The death of Christ became part of the victory over death. When I say part, it's also because the resurrection ultimately sealed the deal. But for there to be a resurrection, there had to be a death. And they didn't get this, the disciples, they're following Jesus, they're giving their lives to him, they're you know, having social consequences, career consequences, their lives are being threatened. They're following Jesus because they actually believe that he's the one he claimed to be. The long-awaited Jewish Messiah is actually here. And it backed it up. He walked on water and he fed all these people with just a little bit of bread and he healed blind people and he brought back one of his friends to life named Lazarus. There's just so many things going, okay, like we're in. And then something happened on a cross on a hill called Calvary. He died. An excruciating death. And what did the disciples do? Did they sit around and get excited because three days later a resurrection was coming like Jesus told them it would? No. They took off. They hung their heads. They got out of town. They hid. 
because just like any other Messiah come lately, he died. And everybody dies. And they're walking down this road called Emmaus. It's in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. And they're just kind of having a pity party. Well, I guess, you know, we got duped. I mean, I really thought he was the one. Like, this was going to be it. And now look at us. We got to go start over, move somewhere. You know, we're the, the mockery of our city and our town. I can't go back to school. After, uh, my, my family's huge Miami Hurricane fans. Don't leave the church. Uh, and... And uh, Miami uh, lost to Florida State last year on a 4th and 14, which we're still working through. And uh, at, the, at the end of the game, my son looked at me and he said, do I have to go to school on Monday? And I said, hey, you dish it, you're going to take it. Yes, you do. I do the same thing when I was a kid living here. Yes, yes, you do. These guys now had to face the music. That they had followed another, maybe cult leader or fraud. And then all of a sudden, Jesus starts walking next to them on the road in his resurrected body. And we are told in the scriptures that God allowed them to see and understand who Jesus was. At first they didn't, weren't able to recognize him. And what does Jesus tell them? He didn't say, hey guys, just kidding, I'm here. He says, don't you remember and haven't you read that the scriptures all said that the Messiah would have to suffer and die and on the third day he would rise again? And they're like, oh, yeah. And he's like, it's me. I'm, I'm here. And all of history was changed as a result. Because it meant now I could face anything as a disciple in the first century, including death, because Jesus is alive and death still hurts, but it's ultimately lost its sting. It's like when you're a kid and you get stung by a bee and the stinger stays in there. And then someone has to come and your mom or grandpa or whoever has to come and pull it out hurts a little bit, but the stinger's gone. This is that on steroids times 100. But yes, it still hurts, but ultimately it does not have the final word, and God removes the stinger once and for all. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Piper, who I this was helpful on some of this, says that because of sin, death is punishment. And that's very biblical, very simple in terms of the Bible being plain about that. The wages of sin is death. Our betrayal against God is punishable by death. That's also why Jesus had to die, because there's a death penalty for sin. He died in our place, so we would not have to face the punishment for those who trust in Christ. Piper goes on, it is the final sentence away from God and away from joy into the misery that never ends. That's the sting, and it's all because of sin. So when sin gets removed once and for all, sting gets removed once and for all, and life then is celebrated for all eternity. See, God's law is a good thing. It tells us how we're to live, but it also brings about God's curse if we rebel, which we all have done. We all stand guilty. So the law is a curse in that sense. The, the, the law stands over and accuses us and points us to our failures, but there's such good news for those of us who have failed miserably. And that's where Paul is celebrating and pointing them towards when he says in verse 57, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Because the law is a curse and death has sting, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ to overcome all of this. How does that happen? Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
Because it is written, and this is actually from Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So in our place, condemned he stood, hanging on the tree called Calvary. First Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So that having died to sins, we might now live for righteousness. And he quotes Isaiah here, by his wounds you have been healed. Hosea 13, I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. This is going to sound familiar here from 1 Corinthians. I will redeem them from death. Death, where are your barbs? Sheol, which is death, Hades, hell, where is your sting? Then we get to verse 58, and we see the word therefore. My seminary professor used to say, anytime you see the word therefore in a text, ask the question, what's it? Therefore. So the reason it's there is a response to everything we just read. It's a response to the good news about the resurrection, that Jesus' resurrection ensures our resurrection, that the incorruptible now is for us who are corruptible, that we're no longer flesh and blood, but we're people who have the spirit of God, that we are redeemed, reconciled, forgiven, adopted into God's family. And he says, therefore, because we have the victory in Jesus Christ, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast. Endure, persevere, be immovable. Always excelling in the Lord's work. And for those of you that are maybe discouraged at work right now or trying to wonder what your purpose is in it, he says, you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now that's not just talking about vocation, it's talking about our lives in general. But nothing you're doing if you're a Christian is in vain. It's not pointless. That God has you there at this time to work for his glory and to let your light shine in the place where he has placed you. Like nothing is small potatoes, you could say, in the kingdom of God. Your labor is not in vain. You go into school on Wednesday, students, it's not in vain. It may seem like that sometimes. It's not a waste of your time. It's not. God has you there at this moment for this time. I'm not saying you gotta go jump on the, the table in the cafeteria and read Romans 8. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying that you're distinct. You're distinct. You're different. And not in a weird kind of socially awkward kind of way, but something different about you because our distinct lives are designed to point people to our distinct God. He says, therefore, be these things as a response to what Jesus has done and will do. And then we get to chapter 16, and chapter 16 has kind of some salutations and some, hey, tell Steve I said what's up, and we'll go to, you know, get wings on Tuesday, and, you know, th that kind of idea. At the beginning, it calls the church to make sure they're being generous towards their local church. It calls them uh, to make sure that they are participating in giving. Uh, that's a, a critical component of discipleship. We say here when we talk about this that every Christian should have a financial plan for how they're going to support their local church, which is God's design. So he covers that just for a minute, and then he keeps going. In verse 13, he kind of comes back to verse 58 in terms of what's implied. He tells them this. Again, it's all in context. The Bible is one, first Corinthians is one letter, not to be isolated, so it all flows together. So after all of 15, he says, hey, be alert. Be alert. You're living in secular Corinth. Where people don't think the same things that you do about God and life and faith and what matters. Be alert so you don't get, so you don't get led astray so you don't compromise, so you don't abandon your faith. So stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. 
He says, be strong. And then verse 14 is just really interesting to me. Because it really goes against what our culture likes to say. Notice he just gave this charge to be alert, stand firm, be courageous, be strong. Then he says, do everything in love. Isn't that interesting that those things go together? Because in our society, those things are usually viewed as being at odds. Where to be courageous, to stand firm, is often viewed as being unloving. To stand in your convictions is viewed as being intolerant or out of touch or judgmental, but usually it comes back to, hey, just love. But here they flow in perfect harmony together. Why? Because God is the one who defines love. And love cannot be expressed apart from the truth. And 1 Corinthians 13, covered it a few weeks ago, Going through 1 Corinthians, he said that you know, love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, does not boast. We've been using that as our benediction during 1 Corinthians. But he also says that, that love does not stand and delight in unrighteousness. That it's about the truth. It doesn't celebrate what God has forbidden. It's courageous to be loving, and it's loving to be courageous. It's loving to be strong in the faith. We see people who do everything in love. Why? Because we're driven by God's love for us, ultimately understood in what Christ has accomplished through his death, resurrection, and that he's coming again. Christ has conquered your death. Therefore, you can be steadfast and immovable. And I know this is complicated in our world, in our era we find ourselves in right now, this kind of moment, this cultural moment is what some people call it. What happened for a long time, maybe the last, I don't know, 19th century into the 20th century, early 20th century, and a kind of middle, end of 19th, mid 20th, was the big battle that Christians had to face regularly was intellectual. So, you know, regularly the, the attacks would be, oh, the Bible's unreliable, uh, this is inconsistent, this is a contradiction. It, it, it was all intellectual kind of idea. Miracles don't really happen, how can you believe that? You know, stuff like that. So thankfully, God rose up people all around the world who are faithful believers who answered all those questions. But there hasn't been an objection yet that, that, that has any substance to it that a believer that God has used hasn't been able to answer. Things like the reliability of the New Testament, how it checks out and stands against any documents of history ever written. And, and any secular historian who's an honest person will acknowledge that that is true. From resurrection testimonies, I mean, over and over again, we see how, how science and faith go together. I mean, it's been answered over and over again by, by so many people. Now, we, we, that's still a thing. We have to keep contending for that. We have to keep having those conversations. We have to keep helping people be equipped to face those type of things. But that's not the main thing Christians are facing right now, even though some of you are in your context. Big picture-wise, what Christians are facing right now is complete exclusion marginalization, and the attempt to be silenced. So what needed a kind of an intellectual revival from Christians beforehand, and thankfully God has provided those people and continues to in the sciences and in technology, we now need a courageous revival. We need a revival of Christians who have some guts. Not because you're special, but because Jesus is alive. And what does Paul tell us to, to be steadfast? Like to, to live for Christ, as you go back to school this week, a lot of it's gonna be not having all the right answers, even though I hope you seek the right answers. It's gonna be believing this stuff enough to say, I ain't moving. 
I ain't moving. And the goalposts keep, keep going further down. They keep moving all the way. I mean, what was just forbidden two years ago is celebrated today. It goes quick. I mean, I can't imagine right now. Like, if you tell your kids right now, oh, I was a teenager once, it's not the same thing. Don't tell them that. It is not the same thing. Only thing you have in common from when they were a teenager is pimples. It, it is not the same thing. The anxiety is different. The pressure is different. The goalpost of what is loving is different. And the word that the scriptures have for us says, Jesus has conquered death. Why would I sweat what something that is perishable is telling me? When the creator of the universe has already guaranteed my resurrection. Why? Why am I sweating all the time what, what these people think of me when I already know what God thinks of me? What is that? I'm forgiven. I'm not corrupt anymore. I'm his child. I've been made new. I'm dearly loved. In Hebrews, he says he also calls us his friend. That he delights in us. I mean, how cool to think that not only does God love us, he actually likes us too. How awesome is that? You know you have people that you love them, but you don't like them. You know what I mean? God loves us and he likes us. He delights in his children as a good father. So why do I feel the pressure to appease a crowd that the Bible calls fools? When the scriptures are lifting up to me, the therefore, because Jesus is alive and the tomb is empty. That's what these believers had. That's what they had to hang on to. That was his reason he was giving them to run from the things that are leading them astray, to endure, to persevere, was like we sang earlier, it's all worth it. Because the tomb is empty and Jesus is coming again and will make all things new. Landing the plane here. Here's the good news for us from Thessalonians. For God did not appoint us to wrath. What a gracious God that we have. That's why we call it the gospel good news. He didn't appoint us to that, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. How amazing that God has appointed us who are believers to eternal life. And to every person who will one day call in the name of the Lord by his grace that he appoints people to salvation. And it's through Jesus, he's clear. Like that is how salvation comes. Galatians 2 says that salvation can be obtained by any other way, by keeping the law, then Christ died for nothing. So we have to make sure we're steadfast and clear that salvation is through Jesus and him alone. And he tells us what he did. He died for us. So whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with him. We're united in this. We're in Christ. We live in him and for him. And these last words are so important right now. Therefore, again, based on what he just read, therefore, what's it there for? Because we have been obtained salvation, we've been appointed to salvation, that God spared us from his punishment of sin because we're united together in Christ. He goes, encourage one another. I mean, who needs some encouragement? Everyone? Because around us is so much discouragement. Encourage one another. Build each other up. Not with empty self-help phrases, but with Christian fellowship and Christian community and love for each other. Encourage one another. Because we're all kind of stumbling along the way, right? But we're all being sanctified. And sometimes it can be a little bit of a painful process. But we know that God is at work making us more like Christ, allowing us to be used for his name and for his glory. 
and that we must be a people who I think, what I call is a humble confidence. Humble knowing it has nothing to do with us. That all we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Humble. But confidence knowing what God has accomplished. And that history has already been written. And there's one who reigns over it and his name is Jesus. And that one day he will come again and judge the living and the dead and all who are in Christ to be counted among his people for all eternity. Forgiven, incorruptible, and immortal. Isn't that great news? I love 1 Corinthians. What, what a book, what a chapter. And my encouragement to you is if maybe you're trying to figure out how do I read my Bible more, I want to read my Bible, I don't know where to start, but we just got to know 1 Corinthians. Go ahead and read 1 Corinthians. Kind of be a little review for you, for those you've been coming regularly. If you've missed all the sermons and want to catch up, We'd love for you to go to our website or go to iTunes and just listen and catch up and go through 1 Corinthians along the way. I hope it's helpful for you. Uh, so I'm going to pray for us, and then um, I'm going to lead us in taking the Lord's Supper, which we think is a good response to what we heard about today. And, uh, and then we'll sing one more song and head on out, and then we'll uh, gather together next week at 8.30, 10, or 11.30. So let's pray, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Our Father, we are thankful for 1 Corinthians, uh, this letter that's inspired by you that. You allowed by your grace the Apostle Paul to write to this church and that it's still because it's inspired scripture is true for us and applies to us today as if it was just written yesterday. So I know that for all of us it can feel at times as if we're living in Corinth, meaning this world. And a lot of the students feel like they are headed to Corinth on Wednesday. And I just ask that we'll be people who are steadfast who are immovable, who are strong in our faith, that are quick to forgive, quick to show grace, quick to love, and quick to acknowledge the fact that we are unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Lord, I ask that we will be mindful of the truths of the resurrection regularly. We worship the one whose resurrection guarantees ours. So for those in this room that just need to be encouraged this morning, allow them to be encouraged in Christ, which is the encouragement that never passes away. Thank you for our church. Thank you for what you're doing here. And Lord, I ask that as we take the Lord's Supper, that we will be locked in on the love of God understood in the death of Jesus Christ. But we will also take this meal understanding that that death did not have the final word. That he rose again after he suffered much. He was buried. He appeared over 500 at one time. He ascended into heaven and one day will come again to make all things new. We're thankful for this truth. We believe it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.